Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going over chapter 4 of book 2. And this one is titled, The Implausibility of Original Sin. So as the title indicates, we're going to talk about the idea of original sin and how it doesn't work, basically. So, as most Mormons know from the second article of faith, one of the main tenets of Mormonism is that we believe that man will be basically held accountable for his own sins and not for Adam's sins. And this, of course, refers directly to this idea of original sin. So, let me start with this basic quote that you talk about Augustine and his influence here. Say, even though the doctrine of original sin was scarcely mentioned at all during the first three centuries of Christian writings, it became a key doctrine at the core of Christian thought due largely to the influence of Augustine. And we've talked about Augustine before, and we know that he's pretty much, at least as far as the classical view of Christianity goes, one of, if not the most influential person in that he guided the main thoughts about God and understanding of God into the big Platonic ideas of the omnis and the God that we talked about a lot in volume one that came up basically as an impersonal and unfeeling and, you know, just a God that can't actually relate to the world. In addition to that, he also had this large influence of this idea of original sin. And before we dive into that, you mentioned that this was not one of the, well, I guess this is technically part of the next section, but I'm going to jump ahead here. So you say that Augustine's theory was a radical departure from previous Christian doctrine, and that this idea of original sin is directly against two main ideas in the Christian faith, at least prior to Augustine, which were the goodness of God's creation and the freedom of the human will. And I was wondering if you could kind of go into what Christians actually believed before Augustine, at least according to what we know, and what the ideas of of Augustine introduced into the Christian lexicon. It would be difficult to overstate the influence of Augustine with respect to reorienting the Christian doctrine. Before Augustine, the idea that human beings were morally responsible because they were inherently free was simply taken to be not merely a part of the gospel, but the very core of the Christian gospel. Human freedom was the basis for not merely our culpability if we did things that were inappropriate. It also defined why we could be culpable, because they were our acts. And so when we read in the Patristic Fathers, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and so forth, you know, the primary creators of the Christian notions of Christian belief. And when we read in the basic works, for instance, of Clement and Ignatius and others, this gift of human freedom is simply equated with the gospel. That all changed with Augustine. And it's hard to, again, overstate the importance of this departure from what had gone before. For Augustine, human beings are incapable of acting in a way that is acceptable to God. We all deserve damnation as a result of the fact that we inherit culpability from Adam. 
and as a result, we are incapable of doing good. This is a corollary of two other doctrines that we're going to discuss later. One is the notion of irresistible grace. Our obstinance and inability to choose God can only be overcome if God infuses into us or if God gives us a gift of simply regarding us as guiltless the ability to be saved. In other words, it must come solely from God because it can't come from us. And the reason it can't come from us is the result of our vixiated natures that due to original sin. The other doctrine that is implicit in the doctrine of original sin is predestination. And that is that God decides who will be saved and who will not be saved. In one view, that's single predestination or who will be saved and who will be damned. That's double predestination. So God chooses some for salvation and chooses others for damnation of the, uh, the creation of the world. And some he gives irresistible grace to to overcome their obstinate rejection of him. And they are saved and become the saved in Christian heaven and in paradise. And those that he chooses to damn, of course, damn from the beginning of the world. And so these two doctrines are the logical result of Augustine's reorientation of doctrine. Now, as a Mormon, there's a part of me that wants to say, if you want to pinpoint one of the key departures from the core of the Christian gospel that we would call the apostasy, this doctrine of original sin and adoption of the doctrine of original sin is probably as fine a place to start in, in terms of doctrine as one can get. That would suggest, though, that the apostasy didn't take place until the 4th century. I think most Mormons believe that it began earlier. But what we can say is that loss of authority, loss of direct access to prophets in heaven resulted much earlier, and one of the results of the, the loss was the loss of guidance with respect to true doctrine. That would be oversimplifying the matter, but I think on the surface that kind of a view has a great deal of appeal to it within the Mormon tradition. All right, great. And then, yeah, just the basic idea of original sin is rather than just being something that Augustine came up with and then it coming out of nowhere, two reasons that you state that a, the idea of original sin is compelling or at least has some merit as far as Christians reading the scriptures go and their worldview is that there are some scriptures that seem to warrant the doctrine and also there needs to be kind of, I don't know what you call it, just like an orienting and I guess it's sort of a I don't know if it's called a metaphysic, like a meta-something that is just kind of part of the Christian story as far as why we are the way we are. In other words, why we have these so-called sinful natures. You know, everyone seems to be in sin, and that's why we need Jesus. And I know we're going to get into that later, but the idea of original sin seems, at least as far as Christianity goes, directly tied to why we even need a Jesus in the first place. So before we jump into the different ideas, what do you want to say about that? Augustine observed the fact that there is infant baptism required the doctrine of original sin and became the chief support for his doctrine of original sin. So the reasoning is this. We have to be extricated from sin, and thus we require a savior. But the doctrine of original sin has often been called a solution in search of a problem, and the problem is original sin. The solution is Jesus. So we come up with the fact of Jesus and he's a savior. And then we say, what's he saving us from? Well, he's saving us from our sinfulness. And so, it, you know, the doctrine of original sin appears to be derived from the fact that you've got a solution. And now we've got to go find a reason why we need the solution to begin with. And Augustine actually does reason in that direction. 
the babies are lost and, and destined to hell unless they're baptized. There must be some reason for that. And the fact is, is the, the reason for that is that we need a Savior, and we need a Savior, and, and it's become circular. Christ saves us, and baptism becomes the solution to the problem that is implicit in the notion that we need saving. So, again, it's difficult to overstate, and, and I don't want to oversimplify the way that this reasoning occurs. Maybe we ought to talk a bit about the scriptural warrant. The problem with the scriptural warrant is that it's not really a scriptural warrant at all. Augustine relied primarily on five different texts for his doctrine of original sin. To preface this, it must be noted that Augustine did not speak Greek well. I think he could read it, but he certainly didn't read it well. And he was basically reading a Latin translation of the scriptures. And when it comes to looking at the scriptures that support original sin, at least three of them are based upon mistranslations. And I'm not going to get into the translation problems and so forth. But what we can note is that um, if we look at the scriptures that he cites, and, and he cites, for instance, Psalm 57, for I was conceived in iniquity, and in sins my mother nourished me in the womb. That um, basically is a mistranslation of the psalm. The psalm is quoted by Augustine in the way that he treats it. There's another, he quotes Job 14 and uh, verses 4 through 5, who is clean from sin, not even a child whose life on earth is of one day. But that reading relies on the mistranslation and erroneous punctuation that is in the Septuagint. More correctly translated, it states, who can produce pure out of unclean? No one, the days of his life are determined. You can see it has nothing to do with being in the womb unclean. Um, and then also relied upon, and this was his always his primary support, Romans 5 and 12. Through one man, sin entered into this world, and through sin and thus death was transmitted to all men, in whom all have sinned. Now, in the Latin, this read in Inculomnis Pecaverunt, which means that everyone sinned because they were in Adam. And that means literally we existed in Adam and we participated in his sin because somehow we're in Adam and in his choice of sin. But that is simply a mistranslation. The Latin mistranslates it because the notion isn't in whom we sinned, it's in which we sinned or in the consequence of which we have sinned. And so the best treatment of all of this is a very old study by N.P. Williams, who around the turn of the century did just a, an incredible study of the doctrine of original sin and goes into detail about the scriptural miswarrant, if you will, that Augustine relied upon for the doctrine of original sin. But it's important to note that Augustine was doing, and because this is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, Martin Luther reintroduced this doctrine of original sin back into Christianity based upon the fact that he was, he was an Augustinian monk and was very familiar with Augustine's writings. And basically, he's relying upon Augustine and reintroducing Augustine's mistakes back into Christianity. And so the notion of original sin became kind of the backbone of the Lutheran doctrine of grace, you know, irresistible grace and salvation by grace alone. and also predestination, and also for at least as far as Luther's concerned, I read Luther to deny any notion of human freedom. And so we are simply incapable of free acts, according to Luther. 
That's how I read him. And I would give a more nuanced reading about the early Luther. I'd give a reading about the later Luther, and then I'd, I'd talk about the change in our nature and how we're made free in Christ. But what's essential to note is that we are essentially incapable of any free act in Luther's shoes. He was a strict determinist, and so what we have is Augustine introducing this, and then the Protestant Reformation reintroducing this notion. And so original sin becomes the very backbone of all Protestant doctrine and soteriology in the sense that the doctrine that is is really distinctive for Protestantism is the doctrine of grace. And of course, there are nuances in the doctrine of grace in Protestantism. We'll discuss those nuances. But it's important to note that a part of what Luther was attempting to correct in the Catholic Church, and I also want to correct this, it's been 500 years since Luther posted his 95 Thesis. And everybody takes that to be kind of what he's doing. He's taking a stand, he's walking up to the church, and he's making a declaration. I'm not going to put up with it anymore. The church has gone wrong, and darn it, I'm, I'm taking a stand. When what he was really doing was posting 95 questions to debate, it was a very common thing to do. And so what Luther actually did was post 95 issues for debate on the church doors. These were live issues for him, admittedly, but he's, it's, it's not like he's up there with his fist raised in the air declaring, I'm taking a stand here and I'm not going to put up with these fallacies any longer. That's not what actually happened. But what did actually happen is, is largely through Luther's influence. The notion of grace and the centrality of grace in Christian thought became much more pronounced and I would like to say in a way reintroduced into Christianity. Unfortunately, it reintroduced also Augustine's rereading of Christianity and the same mistakes that he made back into Christianity. And I call them mistakes because that's how I regard them. I think the rejection of human freedom and accountability and the adoption of original sin and the corollary doctrines of irresistible grace and predestination are just not merely deleterious to Christian doctrine. I, I think they're just plain false, and, and false for good reasons. So it's important, I think, to have at least some grasp of why this is so important in Christianity, how it came about, and, and why they did. So we have these two facts. The first fact is that Augustine and later Luther truly read the scriptures in this way, and they felt duty-bound to follow the scriptures. But the second is, Something that's much harder to explain without a doctrine of original sin or some form of doctrine of, of original culpability that's beyond us, and that is, why do we all go to hell? I mean, you know, as, as human beings, every single one of us who's lived a significant amount of time have acted in a way that is contrary to our own moral beliefs and what is acceptable to us. Every single one of us has done things that make us sick to our stomachs that we would have preferred not to have done in reflection, but we did them, and we recognize that we're culpable for them every single one of us. Why is it that sin is universal? And I think that one of the reasons that the doctrine of original sin was persuasive is there is this given fact about us. Paul referred to it as the natural man. The Book of Mormon refers to it, by the way, in the same way as the natural man. There's something that is given in our nature that is inimical to our ability to commit spiritually to God. And it's this fact, I think, that requires explanation. It's a, it's a pragmatic reality about us. And so there is this observation about human nature, and original sin seems to explain why we're all so rotten. Because if we claim that we're without sin, the minute we claim that, we all know we're liars. Nobody's going to stand up and say, you know, I've never done anything wrong. I've never sinned. I've never done anything that, that was really even terrible. I think most of us would say, yeah, I mean... 
there are a lot of things I'm not proud of, and it's not merely that I'm not proud of them. You know, there are times when I'm just I'm I'm just a little idiot, <laughs> but I'm not merely an idiot. This is not merely coming out of ignorance. I knew better, and I did it anyway. I'm truly an evil person at times, and it's this that drives me to my knees for repentance. And so, why is that? Why is it that we all have the same experience in life? And I think the doctrine of original sin was was a very plausible way to explain that, in the sense that it was plausible because there was something to be explained in fact. All right, and before we dive into the first section, just one other question. Is original sin at all tied to the idea of creation ex nihilo, meaning like is it anything to do with like God can only create perfect things and then we're the ones that screwed it up, or is it not related to that at all? Actually, it would seem to be inimical to the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, because if God were creating us, the question immediately arises, why did he create us evil? I mean, it, it makes no sense. And there is this sense of original sin. For Augustine, the problem is God has this creation of, of Adam, and, and God doesn't create imperfect things. He creates things perfect, or at the very least, he creates them good. So how is it that his creation went wrong? I mean, if, if Adam is truly created good and, and the earth is good as Genesis declares it to be, then why did Adam go wrong? And why is it that we're all going wrong just like Adam did? And so when we get right down to it, the notion of original sin is related to the notion it can't be God that creates us evil. It has, there has to be something else, and it's because of a human being's bad decision. So the next question is, well, how could that human being make a bad decision? And I'm not sure that anybody's come up with a good answer to that one either. Why did Adam go wrong? And I think the answer is, well, Adam really didn't go wrong. He just made a choice. And as a result of his making a choice, he made it possible for the rest of us to make choices. And this is an important fact about us. And, and Adam, I'm taking... I wouldn't take the way that Luther did as a man in a garden who made a choice. I would take that to be a figurative type of discussion where Adam is actually a representative of all humankind. Okay, and yeah, we'll get into that in later chapters and later books and all that, but Jacob's going to walk us through the traditional paradigms of original sin, and we already talked about Augustine, and so we're going to now go over different ways in which different traditions have interpreted original sin and how and, and incorporated it. Um, like we just said, that the traditional doctrine of original sin explains two facts about the human existence, why we sin and why we cannot extricate ourselves from sin. And since Augustine, there's been other paradigms, uh, other ways of justifying, well, we have this doctrine of original sin, how exactly does that fit into everything? And you highlight five of them here. The first one being Calvinism. How does they view original sin? How does that fit into the big picture for them? Again, this is a view of Luther that I've already explained, but it was taken over by Calvin, who explained it, I, I think, in a, a very elegant way. And that is the observation that we all deserve eternal damnation because, and this is the kicker, we are guilty of Adam's sin. And the reason that we're guilty of Adam's sin is generally explained in one of two ways, and that is that we were in him again, based upon the Ambrosiaster mistranslation of Romans 5.12, asserting that somehow we were in Adam, or because he acted as our representative when he did his sinful acts. So Adam is the head of the human family, and when he does something wrong, he does it, and we all deserve to die and go to hell because of the fact that he represented us. It's like we appointed him as our agent, and he made the first bad act, and we're all guilty of it as a result. 
And there are other ways of approaching this within Calvinism, but those are, are the two, I, w- I would think, most common types of explanation. Okay. Uh, the next one you have is Arminianism. And this one, as I understand it, we're guilty of Adam's sin, except that our guilt has been removed already because of the grace as a result of Christ's atonement. However, our nature is so corrupted that we inevitably sin again. So we're endorsing Adam's sin and becoming guilty of it ourselves. Yeah, what Arminianism is saying is that you've got to understand Arminianism begins with the assumption that we're all capable of accepting God's grace through a free act when it's offered to us. And we wouldn't be able to have that freedom but for God's prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is that grace that's given before any choice that we make. And so the fact is, is we would be incapable of making this free choice, but the prevenient grace has rendered us free to make this choice. It's God's grace that makes it possible for us to choose Christ, but it doesn't dictate whether we will or won't choose Christ because he gives sufficient grace to all persons that is sufficient for their salvation, and it's up to our free choice as to whether we accept it or not. How do we become guilty of original sin? And that is that we still have a corrupt nature, even if we're not morally culpable for Adam's sin. It's still that our human nature is so corrupted that it's inevitable that we will sin in our lives. And I I mean, I've already made an observation. It does seem to be inevitable that we will sin in our lives. And the Armenians have argued that by sinning, in essence, we're endorsing Adam's sin and we become guilty of both his sin and our sin as a result because we're endorsing a sinful nature, the sinful nature that we would have inherited but for Christ's intervention. And so that's basically an Armenian explanation for why we suffer from original sin. All right. So the third one you go over here is semi-Pelagianism. How do they view original sin and justify it there? So semi-Pelagianism was a pullback from the position of Pelagius. And Pelagius was just saying, well, not only do we not suffer from original sin, at least in theory, if we had the moral strength of will, we would never sin. The Pelagians are saying, no, that doesn't seem to be quite right. In fact, the fact is is that we're not guilty for Adam's acts. We're guilty for our own acts. But we still have this human nature that is so infected with the sickness that makes it impossible for us to avoid sin. And so sinning is inevitable for us. We inevitably become guilty of our own sins because our will is so corrupted that we will freely choose to do sin. So you've got this paradox, and and we would have to talk about what we mean by freedom. Even for a libertarian, if it's inevitable that I will sin at some time, but on no given occasion is it inevitable that I will sin on any particular occasion, I can still be free in a libertarian sense. It's just that sooner or later I'm going to go wrong. And that's what semi-Pelagians claim. We're free on any given possible choice. It's not inevitable that we're going to sin. What is inevitable is that given our human nature, sooner or later we're going to screw it up badly. Okay. And then number four is just full-blown Pelagianism. How does that differentiate from semi-Pelagianism? So Pelagius was reacting to Augustine and his wholesale adoption of guilt for Adam's sin. And what Pelagius said is, look, we're not guilty for Adam's sin. We're only guilty for our own acts. Moral guilt isn't like that. And in principle, there's no reason that it's inevitable that we would sin. We're free on every single occasion in which we choose, and on no single occasion is it inevitable we will sin. And so, in principle, it's possible for us to avoid sin. There is no notion of original sin for Pelagius. Okay. And then we have Anselmianism. 
Anselmianism is a very reflective view. It's looking at the nature of human culpability. And what it says is there had been a supernatural gift that was given to Adam in his creation, a supernatural gift of goodness. But he lost this supernatural gift of goodness because of his sin that would have made it possible for him to order his inclinations, his acts of will, so that he could avoid sin. And now, because he's rejected that grace that makes it possible for him to avoid sin, it's impossible for us to to refrain from sinning. The problem with Anselmianism immediately is simply that, well, if Adam had the supernatural gift, how did he lose it? I mean, it seems to be circular because he loses it as a result of a bad choice, but if he had the supernatural gift, he wouldn't have made that bad choice in the first place. So Anselmianism is a very reflective response to this kind of problem, but it must be obvious even on the pronouncing of the doctrine itself that it, you know, there's a circularity issue going on here. Okay. Now, with each of these views on uh, original sin and with original sin itself, you bring up that there are at least two problems we need to deal with. First is, how can a person be culpable for or guilty because of acts of another? You call this the problem of vicarious guilt. And the second problem relates to whether I can be morally responsible without a certain capacity of free will. Or how can I be guilty for choosing to sin if I cannot refrain from sinning by my very nature? Yeah, so how does the guilt attach to me if it's your act, not my act? And that's something that I don't think has ever really been seriously resolved, given the numerous attempts to do so. How is it that I can be guilty for what Adam did? It just doesn't seem to make any sense at all, because we all have this notion that our moral responsibility is something that is personal to us. I can be guilty for my own acts and for my own acts of my own free choice and, and what I do myself because I, I choose to do it freely. But how can I be guilty for what you choose to do freely? So I just think this is the primary problem with original sin. The second problem is, well, one of the implications of original sin is that I'm not really free. I mean, at least on certain construals of original sin, the Calvinist construal in particular, how can I be morally accountable for even my own acts if I'm incapable of acting appropriately? If I'm going to go wrong inevitably, then how am I responsible when it's inevitable that I'm going to go wrong? And if my goodness depends upon God's gift of grace to properly order my inclinations, how am I responsible? Because he created me with the nature that I have. My nature is set to go wrong if he doesn't give me this gift, and then he doesn't give me this gift, and so it's inevitable I'm going to go wrong. How can I be responsible for that? So we have these two problems. One is basically my own acts. How can I be responsible for my own acts when I'm not free? And the second is, how could I possibly be guilty for what another person did, i.e. Adam, in this context? All right, so in the next section, we go over that first question in depth. Obviously, this we're not the first people to realize this big problem. And so in light of the problem, a lot of apologist-type arguments have been made trying to justify that. So how can we be guilty for the acts of another? And many ideas have been put forth, and in this section, you kind of go over, we introduce them, and we'll go over them and see if they seem to have merit. So one idea is, you say, perhaps we can say that there is some sense in which every member of an immoral society who, once having become aware of the immoral nature of that society, who does not deliberately disassociate herself from that immorality, shares the blameworthiness for such acts even though she did not individually commit them. 
I think, you know, a lot of people see things like the Nazi movement and people that were sitting around and having the Gestapo come in and take the Jews off to the ghetto that were their next door neighbors. And then, you know, they just didn't do anything about it. A lot of people think, well, you know what? They should have done something about that. And because they didn't, look what happened. It led to more evil. And there's a few sayings that we have that kind of validate that. One is, for evil to prevail, it only requires that good men do nothing. And then another is, silence implies consent. So, you know, if people come by and they're like, hey, we're going to go beat up Bob because he's weird. And then you just kind of sit there and watch it happen. In a way, it's possible that you're guilty for that. And so you're not necessarily directly guilty for the sins of these people, but this idea is saying, in a way, you sort of are by not going against them. And this is called corporate guilt. And we can bring it closer to home. A lot of people believe that we just live in an inherently racist society. And unless we openly repudiate that racism, we are guilty of racism ourselves. And so we must stand up and take a stand against racism. And if we don't acknowledge that we're all racist and that we've got to work on overcoming our racism, it follows that we are guilty of racism, okay? Or that we're all guilty of racism, there's nothing we can do about it, and we're all guilty for slavery, and we're all guilty for what our ancestors did. There are a lot of people I've heard argue, and there are a lot of people who accept the notion that you can be guilty for what an ancestor did, because they actually believe we're guilty of, of slavery. They believe that we live in a society and that we've adopted the mores and, and implicitly somehow those mores still exist in our society. And we're guilty because of what our ancestors did in that regard. And while I'm very sensitive to charges of racism for a lot of reasons, I'm not very accepting of these kinds of assertions or arguments. And here's why. When it becomes apparent, let's, let's say I lived in the Third Reich, as you've suggested, and it becomes apparent to me that what the Third Reich is doing, and I don't know how many Germans knew what was happening to the Jewish people, but it seems like a lot had to know they were being dragged off and being dispossessed of everything. And, you know, to the extent they participated in simply, not, not merely, you know, participating, but condoning the action by not taking a stand against it. And there were a lot of Germans who did take a stand against that kind of action. They are guilty for the entire nation's acts. And so there is this kind of corporate guilt that all of Germany during World War II bears. But this isn't really an analogy to original sin, and here's why. What it implies is that I'm guilty to the extent that I am capable of recognizing that my culture has been vitiated by evil. We don't hold little children in these cultures culpable for the moral failures of their parents because they're just not cognitively capable of assessing and realizing the kind of evil that's involved. Inevitably, they're going to grow up, and to an extent, you know, at least they're going to be indoctrinated into that kind of evil. Maybe they're guilty in a sense. Maybe they have culpability for not coming to realize the kind of evil that is inherent in treating people in the way that, that they were treated, not only in the Third Reich, but the way we treat people in our own society. Maybe they have a duty to become aware of that, but I don't know where that duty would come from, and I've never seen a good argument to suggest that we actually have that kind of a duty. In other words, I have a duty to be aware of the evil that is inherent in my own society that I'm blind to because I've been indoctrinated to believe that it's either A, normal, or, or B, good. But it's still not a good example for original sin because what I'm really accountable for for corporate guilt is being cognitively capable of assessing the guilt of the society in which I exist 
and not myself acting to repudiate it. So I'm actually culpable and accountable morally for my own acts, not for the acts of the people in my culture. I'm accountable for my own acts in this culture. And so it's not really a good analogy to original sin. Okay. And then from there, another idea is from Feinberg. So Feinberg also argues that a group of people may share the same fault, but only one member's fault leads to harm, and that is not because it was more of a fault. And you give an example to kind of illustrate this, where you say, let's say there's a bunch of hoodlum teenagers that got into their dad's gun safe, and they're in like four separate cars driving around, just taking pot shots randomly into buildings. But then, you know, they're all doing terrible, reckless behavior, and it all potentially could hurt someone. One of them does happen to hurt someone. And they're all sort of guilty in this view of this one person that did it, because any one of them could have been that person. It it just happens to be this person that got unlucky that their evil acts resulted in this. Uh, I know this is kind of related to an idea known as moral luck. You know, I really have to go into that too much. But anyway, that's the idea. Well, you're right. It is related to the problem of moral luck. I mean, how many times have I pulled out recklessly, not noticing whether anybody was behind me? And when my neighbor did the same thing, hit a little girl and, and seriously injured her. You know, I'm guilty of the very same conduct. I'm just not guilty of an injury because it didn't happen due to moral luck. But that's a very large issue regarding moral luck as to why I would have lesser guilt. And that's because we look at what actually is caused by my acts and not what merely could be caused by my acts. But again, it's not a very good analogy to original sin because what all of these idiots that run around shooting up the neighborhood are guilty of is being stupid, getting guns, and shooting up the neighborhood. They're guilty for their own acts. They're culpable and morally responsible only for what they actually did. There's one person whose acts actually had consequences, and at least legally, that person alone is going to be charged probably with manslaughter if they were just shooting at random and happened to hit somebody. And so, you know, the other's not guilty of manslaughter. Now, we do have this notion, if we're all involved in a felony, and this is called the murder-felony rule, If I go into a bank, there are three of us, and one of us shoots the teller and the teller dies, we're all three can be charged with murder because we all committed a murder in the course of a felony. If we all had guns and we committed armed robbery, we're all guilty of the ultimate act of murder legally, okay? But we've all seen movies about this where there's a guy who's in there saying, look, don't shoot anybody. Scare them, show them the gun, but don't shoot anybody. And then, and then you got somebody who's wild and reckless and just wants to go in and shoot everybody up. They don't have the same moral culpability. And the way that it actually works out in our jury system is those kinds of distinctions are taken into consideration in sentencing. So if I went in and was urging everybody to be careful, make sure your gun's not loaded, put it on safety, but I've got my gun, I am committing a felony because it's armed robbery, and you go in and you're saying, I'm going to shoot somebody person who says I'm going to go in and shoot somebody is guilty of first-degree murder. The person who goes in with the safety on is not second-degree murder at most. So, And when it comes to sentencing, the kind of culpability that we have falls out. So our law recognizes this kind of distinction. Again, not a very good notion of shared culpability. The mere fact that I'm a human being doesn't make me accountable for the fact that you, you walk in and rob a bank and kill somebody when you do it. I don't share culpability for that. I share culpability for what I did, for my own free choices. So again, not a very good analogy to original sin. 
Okay. And then another one also by Feinberg says, it's kind of related to that federal head argument that we've talked about, but he says kind of in a, the opposite direction. It says, one, if we authorize a person to act as our agent, and then two, let's say, for example, a company is held responsible to pay damages if a person that was supposed to be representing the company went and did harm in some way while representing the company, they can be sued, I guess. Okay, and then we'll talk about that. And then two, in a military context, when a military commander gives direct orders to his soldiers, let's say he gave some dirty orders and told them to go kill someone that they you know, shouldn't have killed, the soldiers are the one that actually carried it out, but since he's the one that ordered it, he's the one guilty, or at least he shares in the guilt. Yeah, you don't remember this, but it's the example of Captain Cali at Mai Lai in, in Vietnam, where this actually happened. They went in and shot up and killed civilians. But the, the problem in this one is the captain was actually there. The captain is responsible for the acts of his agents who act on his behalf, carrying out his will. But again, what he's accountable for is what he did. He ordered them, knowing that it was virtually certain that they would follow his orders or that they were bound to do so in some sense. And so again, not a very good example for purposes of original sin, because they're not culpable for the acts of another. They're culpable for their own acts, and they're culpable precisely because they have free will. They're culpable because they could have freely chosen to say, nope, not doing that, or the person giving the orders was free not to give the orders. If we found out, for instance, that the captain was uh, had been given a drug that made it so he couldn't govern his mental faculties, and he was kind of babbling, and this is what he babbled on accident, we're not going to hold him accountable. That's precisely because he lacks the free will to be morally accountable. And so, again, what we're holding in a person accountable for in all of these, and, and what they do is they want to smuggle in the notion that because others are involved, somehow there's this corporate accountability. But when we analyze carefully what people are accountable for or what they have moral responsible for, we find out that it's their own free actions and not for the acts of another. All right. Did you have anything to say in addition to that first point about the like literal corporate guilt when there's a representative of a company? Yeah, I mean, you have a corporation that can be guilty. The corporations are legal fictions, right? I mean, there's not really an apple. There are people who do work for Apple and they act on behalf of Apple, but there really isn't an entity that actually exists in reality. It's simply a, an ideal construct that we engage in for purposes of legal facilitation. If we say that Apple is liable, it means that the coffers of Apple can be opened up as opposed to my own bank account. So legally, it has consequences. Let me give you a better case. You've got a, an employee. You let the employee drive a car. They're in an accident. And the company is liable for what the employee does. However, unless there is recklessness on the part of the person who's authorizing the uh, employee to drive the car, individuals aren't liable in those kind of circumstances. Again, our law is at least some guide to our moral intuitions. The law isn't always equivalent to morality. And I want to make a distinction between what's legal and, and what is moral. It is not merely legal to view what I'm going to call pornography in the United States. There's no pornography in the United States anymore because it's based upon community standards and based upon the vast usage on the Internet that would suggest that virtually every community is overrun with pornography. You couldn't get a pornography conviction anymore. 
So maybe the very concept of pornography has been legally eviscerated because virtually everybody, there are no community standards against this kind of thing because it appears that every community embraces what we would have called pornography. But there's a vast distinction between what I'm morally accountable for and what is legally permissible. It is legally permissible at uh, indecent materials, what I would call pornography. Not only is it permissible, it is legally protected. You have a First Amendment right to be able to view it. And so the law protects this. For some reason, our society views the ability to look at this kind of trash and, and smut as a very valuable right so that it's protected even against people who want to stop it. But it's not moral for me to do so. My moral responsibility differs radically from the legal responsibility or accountability. And so I, in making legal arguments, I don't want to give the notion that I'm, I'm not aware of the fact that there is a vast distinction between what's legal and what's moral. All right, makes sense. And also, just in that example, it implies that we would have to authorize Adam to act as our agent, and at least in the traditional view of Christianity, we wouldn't have existed yet to do that. Yeah, I'm not sure how that explanation works or, or what they want to point to, to say you'd have to go back to the notion that somehow by our acts, we somehow are acting in a way that endorses that act, and that in endorsing that act, we have appointed him as our agent when he did the act. It's a very strained kind of argument. I don't know how it can be argued with a straight face that we somehow authorized Adam to act as our agent on our behalf to make us morally accountable. But that is the argument that Feinberg makes. It just doesn't hold water in my view. All right, so there's Millard Erickson, and he suggests two additional models for imputing the guilt of Adam's sin to us. His first model is based upon the type of agency principles that we've talked about, that we ratify Adam's sin by committing our own sins. Basically just the idea that we talked about before, like, you know, when you sin, you're basically joining in and showing that you are just as guilty as Adam for his sin because you're doing the very same thing. At least that's how I understood that, if you want to clarify that. I do, because Millard Erickson, I have the greatest respect for Millard Erickson. He's one of the finest theologians in the Protestant tradition, in my opinion, and that's why I use him. I want to use the best arguments. And really what he's talking about is not that I am guilty of what Adam does, but that his sin is imputed to me. It's not that I have Adam's sin, it's that the, his sinfulness will be imputed to me by God. And he's saying that given the scriptural view, when I do my own sins, both knowing that, that what I'm doing is sinful, and I know that it will have consequences that are harmful for others, that in a sense, God will then impute to me the same kind of guilt that Adam had, okay? It's not actually Adam's guilt that's imputed to me. It's guilt in general that's imputed to me. There's this general guilt that all humanity is under. So imputation is the same notion of salvation by grace on the other side, and we'll get into this a lot in later chapters. Christ's goodness is imputed to me. Not that I actually have Christ's goodness. I'm not really as good as Christ is. But God chooses to regard me as as good as Christ because of, of what Christ did. So it's not a reality. I'm not actually guilty of what Adam did, but God is going to regard me as being guilty in the same respect because I'm doing the same kind of thing. Now, is that really a, a model for saying that Adam's sin is imputed to me? And the answer is no. What God's imputing to me is culpability and moral responsibility for what I actually did. Again, it doesn't seem to me to be a very good model for saying that somehow I can be guilty for Adam's sin. But there's even a worse notion here, and I want to keep it in mind. This is important because of the Catholic tradition and the way that Protestants often deal with this who are more traditional. 
And that is, it's not merely that I'm guilty for what Adam did, but I justly deserve punishment for what Adam did. And it seems to me that if I'm merely imputing this kind of guilt, saying, well, I'm going to regard you as guilty, and now it's it's like, well, you did the same thing your father did. You didn't learn your lesson. So I'm going to regard you as just being as guilty as your father. You know what? I'm going to punish you. I'm going to send you to prison for what your father did. You're going to suffer death, and you're going to suffer loss of grace as a result of what somebody else did. That's the move that seems to me to be unjustified. So when we begin to talk about Protestant notions of imputation as opposed to the Catholic notions of actually being guilty, then we are entering a different universe of discourse. And we'll get into that, as I said, in later chapters. And I want to be very careful because Erickson is a Protestant and not a Catholic. But that's the move I can't justify in any sense. And that is, well, you're actually going to punish me because you impute to me a guilt I don't actually have? You're going to hold me just as being just as guilty as he is for what he did? And you're going to punish me with the same thing you're punishing him? Interesting. So, you know, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, and that's the move I don't think can be morally justified. Okay. And then this next one, we went over a lot, so I'm just going to read it and then we can comment on it briefly, but we've pretty much talked about it. So it's the Anselmian view, the one that Aquinas also adopted. And you stay in the book, it appears to have better chances because it's kind of a different take on it like we've explained. And I'll just read the quote that explains what we already talked about. In that view, Adam was originally created with a supernatural gift of sanctification that empowered him to always do what is good and holy. However, as a result of his sin, he lost this gift of grace that enabled him to do good. Thus, the fall of Adam led to a loss, the gift of his ability to do what is good, rather than an acquisition of a new kind of corrupted nature. But you bring up this great point and say, well, here's the thing. If we inevitably sin, and if we can escape sin and its consequences only if God grants us a supernatural grace, then how can we be morally responsible when we sin? Because, you know, if God was going to give us the ability to overcome it, then he should have done it. In addition, whether we are saved is solely up to God because we can merit salvation only by doing what is good, and we can only do good if God grants us the supernatural grace. How did Adam go wrong in the first place? If he had this supernatural gift of sanctification, then why did he go wrong? I mean, there's no explanation. It seems to me that you have a logical construct that Adam is inevitably going to be good because of a gift of grace, but he's not inevitably good because he goes wrong. Well, how did he go wrong if he has this gift of sanctification? It seems to be a logical contradiction. All right, and then also you relate it back to kind of, like, you know, even though it's a, a nice idea, it also doesn't answer the question that you just brought up in the last thing. This is, a, why am I then guilty inherently? And so you say, you know, the idea of how does this justify, for example, infant baptisms? How does taking away this grace somehow transfer into a baby being guilty of the sin? Yeah, I mean, it's not merely a baby being guilty of sin. Imagine what it is. This baby deserves to be damned to hell for all eternity because of what Adam did. And that in light of the fact that this supernatural gift was somehow lost. Well, I've lost that supernatural gift, but now we're, we're justifying eternal damnation of babies and burying them outside of the church cemetery because of what Adam did. And, you know, I think most people can see on the face of it that that is just so morally objectionable, it just stinks to the core. Yeah. Okay, and next we're going to shift gears a bit and then switch to an Arminian view, which we talked about already. But you bring up this idea that I'm going to need you to explain. So first, I guess, explain Arminian's view 
and then you talk about moral dilemmas and how there, in, at least in a certain view, there are no moral dilemmas and how that relates to the Arminian view. Okay, again, the Arminian position is that we would be guilty of Adam's sin if there had been no atonement of Christ, but that our nature is so vixiated that we inevitably sin. Okay, And our nature is vixiated and we inevitably sin because somehow we've endorsed the sin of Adam by committing our own sins. Well, how did we commit our own sins if, you know, what we're explaining is why we sin and what we're explaining, not merely why we sin now, we're explaining the fact that we sin. But I have to have this explanation already in place logically to explain why I sin, but I already have to be guilty of it before I sin. So again, I have a problem of logical circularity. The Armenian view seems to say, okay, look, you can be morally culpable for your own acts, but you are not deserving of eternal damnation for the acts of another. And the reason that you're not is that Christ recognizes that it would be unjust to damn you to hell for eternity for what Adam did. So he's going to save you from those consequences because it's unjust, because he's a just being. Okay, So you can be culpable for Adam's sin, but you don't suffer the consequences in terms of actual punishment for what Adam did. However, once you do your own acts, you then become subject to judgment by God, and you will be culpable for the acts that you, you commit. The notion that we're looking at and why moral dilemmas would kind of vixiate the Arminian notion is that I now become morally accountable because I have free will, right? And in order to make morally responsible choices, I have to be able to know the difference between good and evil. But it seems to me that, uh, at least the argument is, is made, it seems that there are circumstances in which knowing the difference between good and evil is impossible because there are these moral dilemmas where what I should do isn't apparent, and I'm nevertheless guilty for what I do, even though I don't freely choose in a morally responsible sense because I can't really tell what's good. And in this context, it seems that the perfect example is kind of Sophie's Choice. So for those of you who haven't seen the marvelous movie that stars Meryl Streep, and if you haven't seen it, then don't consider yourself a fully developed human being because you've missed out on something that's essential for full humanity. Doing a plug for the movie Sophie's Choice here in case you haven't caught that. So Sophie is a Jewess, and she is brought into a concentration camp, and she has with her her daughter, who is about six, and her son, who's either two or three. And the German commandant sees her coming with these two children. And he has compassion on her, and he's saying, look, you can save one of these children. Choose one. I'll let you save one. Now, she wouldn't have saved either of them, but for the beneficence of this German commandant who's going to allow her to save one when he doesn't have to save either, right? This will become important when I talk about grace later, trust me, because God steps into the shoes of the German commandant in terms of who is saved and who's damned in this dilemma. But to move forward, she grabs her son from the Germans, and her daughter is taken away, and of course, she's killed. And the movie is primarily about her mental breakdown and really the total destruction of her personality, because she's made a choice that she can't live with. Now, the whole point is she's not really morally accountable for the choice that was presented to her. And any choice that she did, it seems that she would have felt guilty beyond a point where she could bear it. And she's not morally accountable for her choice, it appears. In fact, it would appear to be a good thing because inevitably, if the German commandant hadn't given her the choice, both children would have died instead of just one. 
And so it would seem that she had to make a choice. But the fact is, there is no moral dilemma here. The choice she made wasn't morally culpable in any way. The fact that she had no capacity to save both children means that she's not morally accountable for not saving both. And the fact that she chose her son over her daughter was merely, you know, she had to make some choice, and it was just sheerly random. She didn't know which choice to make. It was kind of a moment of, of sheer terror in which she grabs her son and then watches them take her daughter away. Now, I'm not saying that humanly we wouldn't all suffer this kind of sense of guilt that I chose my son rather than my daughter. How could I do that? But you'd feel the same way if you'd chosen your daughter over your son. It's inevitable that as a human being, we look at the choice. The best choice here is to not look back and say, I'm a terrible person because I made this choice. It's not to ask what if. It's to recognize that sometimes things are beyond our control and we did the best that we could. We're the only thing that we could. And so it's just going to have to be good enough. Well, can I interrupt just, I mean, I can see in that case how, like you've said before, like that's a zero-sum game. But, I mean, I don't know. I guess you mentioned Dennis Potter wrote a long thing about how there are no moral dilemmas. Maybe I have to read that, but it seems to me that there are still moral dilemmas. For example, like the classic one they bring up in philosophy classes are like, hey, let's say you got a wife. I mean, this is a real-world example, actually, now, because they have this. Let's say you have a wife that's sick, and there's only one medicine that can help her. And there's a guy that has the medicine, and he's the one guy that hasn't. And like I said, this is a real-world thing. There's one manufacturer that makes it. But they jack up the price to an unbelievable amount so that there's no way that you can afford it. And so you're beholden to two moral laws here, which is you shouldn't steal, and you should obviously save your wife's life if you can. So you don't have enough money. Let's say you tried to raise money, and you still don't have enough. You tried every other means. It didn't come down to it. And so you either need to let your wife die, or you need to go steal this medicine. And that seems to be a moral dilemma. But it really isn't. It isn't a moral dilemma for this reason. One of these things is much more valuable than the other. And I have a bad choice to make here, but I should make the choice that has the consequences and or that recognizes the dignity of persons most greatly. The dignity of persons is recognized most clearly by saving the life of your wife, which is far more valuable than whether you steal the money. So would you steal the money? The answer is, if I had no other options, like, this is also real world. We have a whole bunch of immigrants who broke the law to come into the United States. They couldn't support their families and their children in Mexico or the Guatemala or wherever else they were coming from. They were desperate. And so they broke the law. But they've come here, and they're looking for a better life for their children, and they can get work and support them. Most people, and I'm one of them, would say, yes, they broke the law, and there ought to be consequences for violating the law, but they made the right moral choice. In every single circumstance, if it came down to providing for my children or having them starve and breaking the immigration laws, I would choose to save my children and give them food. It's not really a moral dilemma at all, because the choice there is very clear, and the reason that it is is that the moral value of the choices is, is far from equivalent, and, and which one is more important is obvious. A better example would be one where the moral equivalence of the two choices is essentially the same, and which one I should do is not open. But in that circumstance, I simply make a random choice because there's no rational basis for choosing one over the other, but I have to make one of the choices. Yeah, but back in my example, I mean, what we're looking at, at least when you make moral choices, at least under most moral theories, is the consequences. And 
One of the possible consequences of going to steal the medicine is that you lose your freedom and basically the life that you would have had, and you go to jail for the rest of your life. That's a possibility. Yeah, and, and, and I'm willing to take that chance. Not only am I willing to take that chance, it's still worth getting the medicine to save the life of my wife. If I have to spend life in prison or save my wife's life, it's not even a, a question for me as to which one I should do. Now, again, the distinction between morality and legality. There have to be legal consequences for an ordered society. So I'm not opposed to having consequences. And people ought to, um, if they steal, then they ought to say, look, um, let me enter into an agreement with you if you'll give this to me and do the best they can to get the money. And if they can't do a bargain, well, I'll pay you later. But if they can't do that, the choice is still clear. I don't see a moral dilemma there. What I do see is this problem of, well, I'm going to have consequences, but I still have to do it. It's not a great choice, but it's the choice that I have. In every single instance, I'm still going to make the choice to save my wife in this kind of a circumstance. And so, again, I don't see this as really being a moral dilemma as to what free choice I would make. Let me give another example. This is laid out very clearly in Les Miserables. You have the character of Jean Valjean. What he's doing, and part of what Victor Hugo was doing, was highlighting the completely irrational laws and consequences for, you know, Piccadillo actions. So by stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family, he's sent to prison for five years. Well, you know, if you stole a loaf of bread in the United States today to save, to feed your, your starving family, I predict that 100 out of 100 cases, you would see no prison time, okay? Uh, especially if it were your first infraction. Bottom line is that, you know, he's highlighting the injustice of these draconian laws and penalties. And you would make the same choice that Jean Valjean made. You would steal the bread and feed your family, even if it meant the consequences were that you faced five years of hard labor like he did. But it's a part of, of what Victor Hugo was highlighting again. He's highlighting precisely the injustice of the law when there was a clear moral choice to make, even if it had those consequences. Let's move on from that then. Is there any other view then that you want to go over? Here's a part of what I want to recognize about original sin and the power of the doctrine. Now, Mormons will simply say, we reject original sin because we, we believe that a man is punished for his own transgression or for his own actions and not for his transgression. We seem to have an article of faith that says precisely that. But it's not true that Mormonism doesn't have a notion of original sin. We still have this notion of a vixiated human nature. In fact, you know, throughout the Book of Mormon, there is this notion of human nature. And we'll get into this again later, but a part of what is happening with human beings is that the body that is given to us in mortality presents a real challenge for us to be able to master the demands, passions, and needs of the body. And so there is something about us, and it requires a good deal of work and learning, and it's not mastered in a day. So there is something about us that we have to, quote-unquote, overcome. But the body isn't something to be overcome. It's something that is a real gift to us. It's more like a horse. I get this horse, and it's a wild horse, and I have to tame it. And it might buck me off and, and knock me to the ground a lot of times. But if I'm a good trainer, eventually I'm going to be able to tame that horse and bring it into service to me. And maybe that horse will become an animal that I just love and it's so much a part of my life that I consider being with that animal one of my greatest blessings. And it's the same way with our bodies. They serve us. They're incredible gifts. But the bottom line is, is they're a challenge to us. There are a lot of passions and limitations that we inherit when we take on a human body. 
And so Mormonism still has a very strong notion of something in human nature that is in opposition to our ability to fully live the gospel. And I think that's important to recognize. The other part of the doctrine of original sin that I think is extremely important is none of us can say that we have a clear, transparent view of the world because our views have been vitiated and compromised by the lives that we have lived. In other words, we all have a perspective. We all engage in self-justification, rationalization. We all engage in a particular perspective that is very limited and often self-serving. And none of us can claim to have completely clean windows because our windows have been muddied up by the lives that we've lived. And so we don't have clear cognitive access to the way that the world actually is. We always bend the world into our own service to make it serve what we want it to serve rather than than being able to honestly see the world as it actually is. And none of us can claim to be without sin in the sense that our ability to see truth has been vitiated. This is what's in DNC 93. Our ability to access truth is compromised by the traditions of the world and by the families that we grow up in and the challenges that we have from being in a mortal body. And so what it does is calls for cognitive humility on our part. And this is an important aspect of the doctrine of, if you will, original sin. I'd rather not call it original sin. I'd rather call it an important part of the limitations inherent in the human condition that we have undertaken. And so these are important aspects of the doctrine of original sin. And one of them, one of the aspects of original sin is to describe and explain why we are cognitively vitiated and limited. By vitiated, it means, you know, it's been screwed up. And so I think it's important to recognize this tendency to be sinful, the tendency towards self-rationalization and the tendency that we have a natural tendency to be selfish, self-regarding, and self-absorbed. And these are facts about us that require us to be diligent to overcome them. And we're all working on it all the time. And it's a lifetime endeavor. None of us ever fully overcomes it in this life. And so there is something about us that requires some explanation as to why we have this lifelong endeavor and challenge that is not easily overcome. And in fact, we all know people who do such a remarkable job of overcoming these things because of their ability to love others. And we revel and they make us feel so wonderful just to be in their presence. And I'm frankly in awe of these kinds of people and and I desire to be like them. But the doctrine of original sin serves us to the extent that instead of making us deserving of eternal damnation for nothing that we did, to recognize that what it actually is about, what it actually is about is our compromised condition and mortality, which I think is a valuable contribution. All right, great. So if there's nothing else, we can end with that. And next time we'll talk about Mormon conceptions of original sin and just sin in general. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.